Welcome to the War in Ukraine update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm talking today with Oksana Shevel. Oksana is Associate Professor of Political Science at Tufts University. Oksana focuses in her work on nation building and the politics of citizenship and national identity, particularly in countries that were formerly a part of the Soviet Union. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Oksana. Thanks for the invitation. So I wanted to have a chat today about the domestic political and national identity context within Ukraine. Some years ago now, I believe in 2011, if I'm not mistaken, you wrote a book about the approach to refugees after the USSR broke down. So you looked at Russia, Ukraine, Czech Republic and Poland, and you found some really interesting differences between the approach to refugees in some of those countries to contextualize our discussion, what you found regarding the differences between Russia and Ukraine in the approach to refugees following the breakdown of the Soviet Union. The contrast that I found between Russia and Ukraine was actually quite puzzling. Basically, an interesting phenomena, which seems kind of counterintuitive, was that Ukraine in the 90s in particular, which was the period um, in the early 2000s that I dealt with in my research then, ended up being quite substantially more receptive to refugees who came from the developing world, in particular the Afghan refugees, many of whom ended up in Ukraine as a result of the Soviet era policy of involvement in Afghanistan than Russia was. So there was this quite sort of disconnect that the same group received quite different treatment. By the same token, ethnic Ukrainians who came back from other republics, oftentimes from conflict zones, back to Ukraine in the 1990s, did not receive anything resembling preferential treatment, which was the exact opposite to what was happening in Russia, where Russians came from as a former Soviet republics to Russia. So on the one hand, in Ukraine, we had these international refugees, non-coethnics, getting better treatment than the same group did in Russia. And on the other hand, the the coethnics was the opposite situation. They were more welcomed in Russia. Legislation was more generous. There was a separate law for them. And there was nothing resembling that in Ukraine. And one of the key explanations that they found for it was divisions of national identity, how it was much more divided in Ukraine than in Russia. And that kind of almost accidentally produced these externalities with regard to refugees. So essentially in Russia, there was more or less a consensus. Yes, there were also different viewpoints, but there was broad consensus that these Russian speakers and ethnic Russians and the former Soviet states, some 25 million were left behind outside the borders of the Russian Federation, that they're somehow the group towards which the Russian state has special obligation. And yes, you know, oftentimes elites use this argument strategically. They may have wanted to extend you know, foreign policy influence. They may not necessarily care kind of in humanitarian terms about this group. But there was this broad consensus that these people are somehow part of us, which translated into more receptive policies towards them. And by contrast, when UN and other refugee agencies said, but what about these other people who fit international legal definition of refugees? There are also, there in, in your country, you have to do something for them. There was really reluctance to help them because, again, the perception was that it is the Russian speakers, the Russians who deserve help, not these Afghans, Angolans, and the others. And in Ukraine, basically the opposite transpired. There was no agreement in the Ukrainian political class over who exactly constitutes us. On the one hand, there was the right of the political spectrum that took the view that ethnic Ukrainians are indeed kind of the core of the nation and the state should have separate special obligations towards this group. And they advocated for more generous policies to ethnic Ukrainians. But they were opposed by the communists and socialists who at the time actually were not even supporting of Ukrainian statehood. They kind of wanted some sort of form of integration with Russia, dual citizenship and things like that. So they certainly were not open to the idea that ethnic Ukrainians are somehow a preferential group. 
And then the compromise ended up being that the citizenship was defined by territory. So it was very civic definition of the criteria for citizenship. And as a result, it allowed for application of international legal standards in Ukraine, unlike in Russia. Because again, there was no domestic agreement that there is some other group that needs to be better treated, right? Like Kuesnik's. So that was basically the finding you know, in my book, which is a little bit, in some way, we can say counterintuitive, because usually we associate divisions of a national identity with various problems, you know, weakness, potential conflict in society, right? But in Ukraine, at least in the sphere of refugee and citizenship policy, it created these positive kind of unintended outcomes. On the one hand, civic law on citizenship that use territory as opposed to ethnicity or language as criteria for citizenship. And on the other hand, this refugee legislation that was more compliant with international legal framework. Now, these things, a lot of changes have taken place in national identity discourse and understanding of the nation in Ukraine. And this process was especially turbocharged, we could say, after the start of uh, Russian aggression against Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And it is fascinating that it's sort of counterintuitive that actually in some ways more contested national identity also leads to more openness in the civic space. So how did the Euromaidan revolution, I guess, if we start from that point, I know there was, you know, also the Orange Revolution early on, but let's start from sort of Euromaidan revolution and the first Russian incursions into Ukrainian territory in 2014. And then we have, of course, the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine in February this year. How have those events affected this political landscape that you described? Yes, so this is very important. Both of these events, I think I would say an important sense of turning points, right, or critical junctions that I think looking back, we would say that signaled the start of some profound and quite rapid changes in attitudes that oftentimes don't change for decades. So this kind of divide in Ukraine between more pro-Russian, Russian-speaking, east and south of the country, and more kind of west-oriented, oftentimes more culturally Ukrainian, Ukrainian-speaking, west and sort of center-west of the country has held in Ukraine through the post-Soviet period. So we can see these patterns uh, in voting patterns, like in public opinion polls, in demographic criteria. Now, the divide was never sort of very simplistic. I mean, that would be a mistake to say that there were like two very clearly defined parts of Ukraine, like where exactly that divide was was very malleable. First of all, there was some evolution going on. We can even see in terms of electoral results, for example, if we look at the results in parliamentary and presidential elections, In 1991, the first presidential election, when also was the day for independence referendum from the Soviet Union, the candidate that positioned himself as the most pro-Western candidate, Chernovil, Vячеслав Chernovil, he only won in the parts of Ukraine that were part of internal Poland, right? So he only won in these Galician regions, right? So, and then the rest of Ukraine supported this former communist Kravchuk. He's advocated for independence, but was, you know, also friendly relations with Russia, all of this. Now, if you look at how sort of subsequent elections, we can see the border shifting further for the West. Like in 1994 elections, we already had parts of Ukraine in the sort of center-West going the same way as Galicia, right, the far West. Then by, you know, 1998, we see, you know, the divide kind of reaching Kyiv region and, you know, the areas around it. And then by 2002, it, it actually gets to the Dnipro River and then in Kerovakrat crossing the border and that we get to the Orange Revolution and so forth. So kind of two points I wanted to make that, first of all, yes, this divide was very real. And, you know, we could see that there were more or less equal groups that would support, say, integration with the European Union as opposed to integration with Russia-led commonwealths of independent states. But again, this divide was never sort of set in stone. And just by the sake of time, I think the pro-Western, you want to call it, constituency was somewhat growing, right? Now, when we fast forward to Euromaidan, 
it created, I would say, at least two very important changes. One that was that this European orientation became a preferred position to more people than before. Euromedan started when Yanukovych refused to sign this association and free trade agreement with the EU. Most people, of course, never read the actual agreement, which is a pretty dense legal document, you know, talking about trade and things, but it was perceived as a symbolic kind of end point, right? Like, where is the country ultimately going? Is it going to become a European, normal European country, right? Or is it going to be somehow in Russia's sphere of influence? And the protesters, which again was regionally concentrated, it's not the case that everybody across Ukraine supported Euromaidan, it had more skewed base of support in the center and the west, but still it was already a larger constituency. Now, after Euromaidan wins and Yanukovych flees and Russia then annexes Crimea and fuels conflict in eastern Ukraine, two important things happen. So first of all, the part of the country that was the most pro-Russian gets physically cut off. And I think that was one of the critical mistakes of Putin, because if he wanted to preserve influence over Ukraine, they had all the levers of influence. Not only they had media and energy and all of this, they had the voters. I mean, these people didn't go anywhere. Crimea, you know, was not in favor of Euromaidan. Whenever next round of election, they would have voted to whoever would have been more pro-Russian candidate. The same for Eastern Ukraine, right? But once these territories were, you know, annexed in case of Crimea and essentially made de facto independent from Ukraine and Donbass, these people were no longer voting. So even mathematically, it became kind of almost impossible. There are some studies where people actually run the numbers and concluded that just electorally speaking, it became next to impossible for any pro-Russian candidate to win nationwide vote, right? So Russia in that sense kind of shot itself in the foot. But in addition to this, this very open Russian aggression also turned more people away from Russia in their attitudes. So we see for the first time, starting after 2014, support for NATO not only growing, but by the time of the invasion, actually exceeding opposition to NATO in all regions of Ukraine, including in the East and the South, which historically never supported membership in NATO. We see much more sort of support for the idea that Ukrainian is the only state language, for this decommunization policy. Again, it was not 100%, it never would be in any country, but we certainly see a growth and a spike in these, you know, whatever you want to call them, pro-Ukrainian attitudes, right? So there is this evolution of identity. And again, it was often quite complex. And for some people who were, say, Russian speakers, change in attitude may have preceded linguistic change. It's not that they all necessarily switched to speaking Ukrainian, although, you know, some scholars have done research kind of talking about stages in this evolution, which is also quite interesting. But there was definitely kind of a change in attitudes on the one hand, and this electoral territorial change with the pro-Russian voters cut off, right? And then again, after Russia invades in February now with a full-scale invasion, we see yet again another spike in these anti-Russian attitudes across the board in Ukraine. So to the point when some incredibly high percentages, right, people in the 80 plus percent, like 90, you know, approaching 90 percent, who would say that Russia is the enemy, that the EU is the way, support for NATO, all of these things. So again, I mean, to, to my mind, it's really a deep irony that Putin and his quest to keep Ukraine in the Russian sphere of influence and to preserve Russian leverage and influence over Ukraine really undermined it. I mean, he had done, we can say more, for consolidation of Ukrainian nationalism or Ukrainian nationalist attitudes than any Ukrainian nationalist leader could have ever hoped to achieve. We now have support for even this interwar Ukrainian nationalist figures like Stepan Bandera and the Ukrainian insurgent army, that these groups that before 2014 for sure, and even after 2014, 
people had kind of lukewarm attitudes. I mean, they were not necessarily seen as, you know, heroes and revisions in historical memory to elevate their status were quite controversial. Now people support these groups. And again, they don't support them because they share in Bandera's nationalist ideology of, you know, interwar nationalism, but they support them because they see it as a symbolic figure who fought against Soviet Russian domination. You really can't overemphasize how ironic it is. This whole keeping Ukraine in Russian sphere of influence, Putin has achieved exactly the opposite. Mm-hmm. And as someone who's been observing this space for at least a few decades, whatever happens now with the war in Ukraine, what would you see as developments or trajectory in that domestic political space within Ukraine going forward? Yeah, if we think of domestic political space, of course, we don't know the outcome of the war. I mean, I think Ukraine can win and should win, and I don't see Putin achieving what he wants. But, you know, leaving that aside, I think what could potentially happen in Ukraine after the war? On one hand, we can predict, but on the other hand, I think we can see some potential dilemmas there and kind of better and worse, what I would say, potential outcomes, right? We don't know which way it's going to go, but you can sort of make educated guesses or educated consideration, like, this is one plausible pathway, this is another plausible pathway, right? And one way maybe would be sort of like less optimistic, if you want to put it this way, could be to say that, again, this consolidation of national identity is something exactly the way in which divisions over national identity enabled pluralism before in Ukraine. Because in my own research, I talked about pluralism kind of in the spheres of refugee and citizenship policy, but people have written about these divisions of identity enabling political pluralism, enabling political competition, the sustaining political competition, Luke and Wei's work on competitive authoritarianism and pl- what he calls pluralism by default in Ukraine, sort of prime example of these electoral regional divides sustaining political competition, right? Now there is g- going to be less of that divide because, again, of the consolidation of identity. Does it mean that it may be easier to establish some form of sort of less democratic rule? I think hypothetically it is because basically now you can have whoever is in opposition maybe harder to mobilize on some very easily because all these identity issues were always easy to mobilize around right now you can't really imagine any kind of pro-russian anything mobilizing in ukraine and having popular support and you know competing in elections successfully and so forth so hypothetically i think that the one could say that there is some danger of say more authoritarian policies or leaders being pursued. We could also even extend that to, say, identity politics, that you could impose now some sort of narrative that would be very one-sided, right? Like, if you want to say very anti-Russian, you know, so forth, and whoever descending voices would be silenced, right? And you have, you know, maybe representation of the past that is, again, achieved in not very democratic way. I personally don't think, I mean, again, I don't exclude this possibility, but I don't think it's going to be very likely. And there are a few reasons behind this. So first of all, these old debates about the interwar nationalism, right? Like if the Ukrainian nationalists, the Bandera, were they the good guys, were they the bad guys? Like on the one hand, they were the bad guys, you know, they killed a lot of civilians, right? They collaborated with the Nazis and some of them participation in the Holocaust, but they also fought against the Soviet oppression. So how do we think about them? And this debate has been going on for a long time and there is no really end. But I think what's now is going to more likely to happen because Ukrainians now have current heroes. They have contemporary heroes, their fathers, their brothers, you know, people they went to school with, people who live in their towns, right, who are now fighting Russian aggression. So there is much less, I would say, kind of need and much less political currency to be gained from debating these historical, you know, episodes. So I think we would see probably, and again, people who are contemporary heroes, many of them actually are Russian speakers, right? They, or they come from the East and the South. So it's, you know, again, this Ukrainian 
diversity, Ukrainian kind of cultural complexity. You can be Ukrainian patriot and speak Russian, right? And, and here are plenty of examples, you know, in our armed forces and the volunteers and the civilians and so forth. And if these become new contemporary heroes, right, again, it kind of builds both civil society aspect of it, it builds Kind of participation, right? It promotes diversity. So I think that, to, you know, again, if I were to make a prediction, I think this is somewhat more likely just because the war is so much in the present, right? Everybody can relate to it. Like, can you really relate to whoever were political actors in the 1930s? It's much harder. It's distant past, right? Like, we don't know what life was like back then. People don't have immediate experience, but they much have very much immediate experience about contemporary heroes who maybe spoke Russian at home and Ukrainian at work and some sort of mix of the both, you know, at the front lines. And so I see kind of sign of optimism for that as well, right? And I think another reason to remain optimistic is that Ukraine now has committed, it has received a candidate status for European Union membership. European Union is associated with democracy, with pluralism, all of these things. So I think it would be much harder, like just sort of hypothetically saying that if some person tried to establish authoritarian rule in post-war Ukraine, to accomplish that and also pursue integration with the EU. We could talk about, well, you know, the EU may still feel like it has to accept Ukraine, so they're now committed, so maybe autocrat can get away with it, something to it, but not really. I mean, if you look at how you dealt with, say, Baltic countries, right, that, that accession was delayed in case of Latvia, because its minority policies were considered not quite comparable with European standards. So I think this commitment to European way, to the EU, is going to serve as important constraint on any potential authoritarian tendencies developing in the country. So overall, I would say I'm more optimistic than pessimistic. So I, as I was saying, like I don't think we can exclude completely the danger of this kind of more closed political space, more controlled discourse, more authoritarian, less competitive politics, exactly in part because this identity device will no longer foster pluralism by default because identity divides themselves have evolved, right? But given, you know, the experience of the war, how society reacted to it, the consequences for society and the EU commitment, I think overall Ukraine probably would, would eventually make it into a democratic, stable state. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Oksana. I really appreciate you being with me on the podcast today and I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Mr. Smith for our theme music. Music